Welcome in everyone to Flyover Footies, Flyover Fallout. My name is Matt Baker, joined as always with Santiago Beltran, and we're here to recap like we always are. Match day 34 for St. Louis City. Unfortunately, it didn't go our way. 2-0 lost to Seattle Sounders, but there's a lot to look forward to. There's plenty to look back on that we're going to do first before getting too ahead of ourselves. Santi, how are you? How'd you, how'd you see the match last night? Uh, doing great, doing great. This is the last flyover fallout of the regular season. So next time we, we record, we'll be talking about a postseason game. But no, uh, doing great. Um, it's obviously a little disappointing after a loss. Um, it's a little sad to end the regular season with a loss. But it's at the same time, you have to celebrate what the team did during the regular season, uh, clinched really early, secure first place also with two games left. So so it's it's a little bit different. Uh, I think the intensity the last two games wasn't the same. And I yeah, I know the players were trying, but at the same time, it's, it's difficult to, to get your head uh, in the game when you don't have anything to to fight for in those last two games. But uh, let's let's talk about it. True to that. Um, and we're going to do a full recap of, of more of the regular season on our, our full flyover footy show this Thursday. So if you if you are interested in more of a, a postmortem of the season itself, uh, tune into that one. For now, Santi, let's get into the starting 11. We were hoping to see one of our best 11. I think we have a few different versions of what that could look like. So you mentioned coming off of a long break, we had international duties. So what we saw, I think... I don't know that a lot of people could really argue this was our absolute best 11, but I think it's what Carnell saw as best 11 of what we had um, available that he chose to use. There's one notable absence that we'll get to, but it started with Berkey and Nett like we expected. Anthony Markanik, Joachim Nilsson, Tim Parker, Jake Nerwinski made up our back line. Akil Watts, Jwulu Blom were more of a double pivot. You had Edu Leuven and AZ Jackson as dual 10s, I would say, and ended up playing kind of wide. Nico Joachini and Klaus up top. So you see... Akil Watts back in the starting lineup. You see Nico Joachini return to the starting lineup. And other than that, it's kind of business as usual. But uh, before I see what you thought of the lineup, I do have a quote from Bradley Carnell postgame regarding Indiana Vasilev, because that was the biggest question with conversations leading into the game about his national team duties and how that impacted his availability for Saturday. Carnell said, quote, one thing you don't know, Indy had a problem in the national camp. He had a problem with his calf muscle that kept him out of the first game. He played 30 minutes, managed minutes, and load, and we had to do the same thing. So we just weren't sure because of Indy's arrival how long he could go and didn't have time to assess. We just took a cautious approach. So long term, because we saw Indy come in in the second half, I would hope that this isn't a concern, especially since we look to have a little bit more of a week off. But it was unfortunate that I think Indy couldn't go. And because Indy couldn't go, or they kept him out rather, that mm-hmm. was a little bit of a cascade effect. And I think that's obviously why Akil Watts was in the starting lineup. And uh, it did not, to me, it did not go nearly as well as anybody would have hoped. What did you think about the starting 11? Yeah, so back to Indy. He, when he came in, he looked good. So um, hopefully um, he will be okay uh, for the playoff game. But, yo, but yeah, very competitive um, starting 11. Obviously, you have to adjust a little bit because Indy couldn't go from from the beginning, but uh, but having Blom and Akil Watts, uh, I think it was a, a good plan to um, contain Seattle. And uh, I like the the four two the four two two two. Um, 
but uh, obviously Seattle, um, they uh, they play a good game and uh, were able to find some spaces and pass the ball quickly when they needed to and uh, get the ball behind uh, our defenders. That's the thing. You saw with the passing network a big difference in the defensive midfield from the way that they defended to the way that they uh, brought the ball out. I think there was uh, we have a, I've got a stat at the end of the game when we finish our game flow that kind of looks to I would I would argue kind of the ineffectiveness of Blome and Watts in progressing the ball and it, at least the juxtaposition against Seattle because we know that Seattle played a different game they have a different style a different approach but when you're when you're having this kind of a matchup of clashing styles where we're more direct we're more over the top we make quicker longer passes and they are more you know trying to play the ball out of themselves uh, they might have make a lot of short passes they leverage their defensive midfield a lot more than we did and uh, I, I think this is really relevant to the passing network in our buildup, especially in the first half, where you do have a lot of the ball going through Parker and Nilsson, but Watts is kind of more on an island. He really did not have much of an involvement in, in the attack, in the offense. And that's it, it's almost like a missing piece in the field where you're, you're kind of just – you're at a disadvantage because the, the area of the field that Watts was patrolling – the ball wasn't progressing at all. So you moved it through Nerwinski. You moved it through Markanik, who was playing high over near Edu Leuven. And I feel like that's just a missed opportunity. And whether you say it's because of Akil Watts or whether you say it's just because of the positioning and what Seattle was doing, I think either way, it was just something that Seattle was able to neutralize from what City was throwing at them. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird to see uh, Akil Watts isolated in the in the passing network. Um, so yeah, uh, Seattle, um, Seattle had a good game and in the end having, uh, that double pivot with Watts and, um, the bull Blom didn't go the way we expected it to go. Yeah. And Bradley Carnell said in the first half, when you're looking at, uh, how it, how the game started versus how it progressed, he said, yeah, even though it was a tight game, not too many chances, you could argue that we had the better chances early on in the game. But against a team like this who don't give much away, you have to take chances. You have to take the moments that are awarded to us and the opportunities given. So unfortunately, we didn't do that. And the early chances, Klaus at two minutes, he had a shot. AZ at five minutes, he had a shot after a Leuven free kick. There were there. The chances were there. Now, high percentage chances, maybe not as much. And, and that, that was a prevailing thought throughout the game. But we had a lot of corners early. We had a lot of of those moments that we couldn't take advantage of. And when you're playing the style that city does, we harp on this all the time. Carnell mentions it all the time, reinforcing it. But if you don't take these opportunities, you don't take these moments and these chances, then against a team like Seattle or LAFC that we've seen, it's going to bite you. And when you're not given that many chances, especially early in the first half, Seattle has an opportunity to change things really quickly. Was there anything notable that you saw before Seattle got on the scoreboard? Yeah, so those first five minutes were uh, all city on on Seattle's uh, end of the field, and uh, one thing that caught my attention on on the set pieces and and the corner kicks early in the game, it was uh, Lewin going to uh, the first post looking for AC, which um, almost worked on on that chance that uh, Klaus ended up uh, missing. It was a, a header from AC and. And then uh, Stefan Freya couldn't couldn't secure, it. and on the rebound, Klaus um, couldn't finish. And then uh, AC, like two minutes later, had another one, 
he had a header and then uh, Stefan Stefan Frey was able to control it but um, the few chances City created uh, Stefan Frey had a great game and then he had a like two or three key saves during the game that um, kept the game score kept the game scoreless or um, like avoided uh, City's um, equalizer when Seattle went up. And in the first half, especially St. Louis actually had more shots on target. And I know mm-hmm. some, a lot of those came early and we were dominating possession in the first five minutes, actually 75, 25. And so a lot of those were leading two chances. Unfortunately that Stefan Fry came up big and we couldn't, couldn't capitalize. So then it led to the 23 minute mark where I would argue that this was really Seattle's only best shot. And, and I mean that not to say that the, the second goal, I think the way that the goals built uh, obviously, the second one what is what it is, is is the first one is more quintessential St. Louis defensive deficiency to me. So setting the stage for that first goal, 23 minutes in, there's a big switch in their own zone. Seattle played the ball left to right, and they did this a few times in the game with these big, big, heavy switches. The ball was played left to right to Alex Roldan. He was then possessing the ball in their defensive half, right near midfield, kind of drawing in Jabulu Blom and Edu Leuven. Once he drew them in, he played the ball between the two, got it over to Christian Roldan, and Josh Atencio was over there on the right wing as well. They played the ball off of each other effectively. I think it's Mm -hmm. no argument there. Right back to a cutting Christian Roldan as he's going into the right channel. Roldan's making the the move as, as high as he can, plays the ball over to Jordan Morris really quickly, but Tim Parker has the, the slide tackle that prevents Morris from doing anything. Unfortunately, the ball landed back at Roldan's feet. He gets deep in the channel, really high up on the field, and he's unguarded in the box. Uh, Anthony Markanik was higher near Tim Parker playing that uh, defensive press, and then Christian Roldan passed the ball back into the middle. And if you go look at the replay, you can see that there's just a, a defensive lapse. And, and this highlights a lot of what St. Louis's problems are in the transition defense because you have Akil Watts, one of the double pivots, stepping up into Roldan over in that right channel. Nerwinski was deep centrally. Joachim Nielsen was in the middle of the box, but there was nobody on the other side, nobody behind the players. You had Jabulu Blom outside of the box. You had Leuven Parker outside the box. And so when the ball was played over to Albert Rusnak, he had an open lane for a shot. And that's that's where St. Louis gets stretched. They get drawn out. And when Rusnak shot the ball, it was, a, it was a great shot. It got past Berkey's lower right. But when you give space to a player as talented as Albert Rusnak, he's going to make you pay. And that's what ended up happening. Yeah, and even even the the buildup of, of that play, uh, trying to draw a CD and, and create a space and uh, quick passes. Um, I think uh, Seattle did that a few times. And uh, I think they they figure out that those quick passes and trying to go behind behind the back um, was going to work against against City and and on that play and uh, the quick switch uh, from left to right and then uh, quick passes uh, between two three players uh, they were able to create the space needed for a uh, roll down to uh, to get that cross to a uh, Rusnak. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a good build up. But uh, as you said, uh, it highlights. Um, some of the deficiencies at, at times um, that the team has defensively. And unfortunately, I think that is exhibit A of being unable to figure out Seattle in their offense. This is our now our second loss against the Sounders mm-hmm. and and being the only team to defeat St. Louis City twice in MLS play this year. 
uh, we just didn't have an answer for that type of an offense. And it was a moment. They had a few opportunities, but this was a moment where it was done to perfection. And if you give Seattle enough of those chances, they're going to take advantage of at least one of them. That's what we saw here. After that, we did have some more moments from City. And so there, there were three moments in the first half where City was more dominating possession. And it occurred at the beginning of the game. It occurred between the goals and right before half. Between the goals, I think you saw Jabulu Blom had a great shot at 29 minutes. It was a frozen yeah. rope from outside the box off an Anthony Marcanic shot deflection. That was one of those opportunities where you could easily see uh, Minnesota United uh, replay Jabulu <laughs> Blom having that that really worldy goal that he'd been working on. You know, that exact shot from distance that we've seen from him often. Unfortunately, it couldn't find net. And then the Tim Parker own goal happened, or uh, Reed Baker Whiting goal, however you want to look at it. Uh, I, I think this was different from the first goal to me, Santi, because I didn't see as much of a defensive lapse at all. I actually saw this as the most unfortunate turn of events. Yeah. Because it, it was a turnover from Leuven in the midfield, but the team was building and, and they hadn't yet pressed high. And so you still had numbers back. And so Leuven was trying to play it to either AZ or Akil. Reed Baker winning, took the ball through the left channel, played it over to Leo Chu. And then Baker winning kind of didn't stop. He kept making his run there through the left channel and we had numbers defensively. And so Tim Parker took him on near the end line. And unfortunately, whenever he, I don't know if he was attempting to put the ball on net actually, or just cross it over to Jordan Morris but Parker got his right foot on it, and it was just enough to change the direction over Berkey to get it past him at a tough angle. And I think the worst part about that to me isn't just the the unfortunate uh, touch from Parker, but it's that defensively I felt we were in a good position there. We wouldn't have – I don't feel we would have given up a goal had it not been for that unfortunate touch And because we had six in the box at that time. They had five. Nobody was really in near our, our – uh, deeper defensive players. You had Jordan Morris in behind, and I think that's who Reed Baker Whitting was trying to find. But it was a well-played defensive play by City that it was just one of those unfortunate moments. I do have, uh, the, I mean, the fun fact of this one, which is not fun in the slightest, but the fact is that after this goal, it was the final goal that happened for City in the regular season. Tim Parker has the benefit and or the luxury, the unfortunate, (laughs) yeah, the unfortunate uh, pleasure of being the player to score the first and the last goal of City's regular season. And uh, if you remember the highest of highs at Austin FC, the lowest of lows happened right there with Parker's own goal. Yeah, yeah, but it was an unfortunate play. Um, I think... uh, Baker winning was was trying to cross it and and just uh, an unfortunate bounce and ended up going going into the net. Uh, but um, Baker winning had a good run and uh, I was going to say that on the two games against Seattle, uh, first game at Seattle, Joao Paulo wasn't available mm-hmm. and just attention a young player who now is a, a, a regular starter and yep. ended up uh, replacing him and made a difference uh, in that game. And then last night, um, Nuhu uh, didn't start because he had a long travel. He was with Cameroon, Cameroon's national team. And then uh, Reed, like Baker winning, um, ended up uh, having a good game. And uh, even if he wasn't trying to, to shoot, uh, he, he had a good run and, and created the play. So two young players um, that at the moment, when regular starter ended up making the difference in, in both games. Second half saw a little bit of a different look from City, and I think it was partly 
the tactical decisions that Carnell made at half, including the substitutes, bringing in Jared Stroud, Indiana Vasilev for Akil Watson, Jabu Leblom, but also Seattle played a lot more defensive minded. They were, they were not as uh, willing to take chances. They were a lot more inviting of St. Louis. And so where you saw the first half possession skew towards Seattle, you saw the second half possession actually skew a lot towards St. Louis city. So much so that Seattle led in the first half possession, 56 to 44, St. Louis, as we described what happened in the second half, ended up leading in possession 62% to 38. This was this is a vastly different second half. And Carnell even said that he liked the energy in the second half. Post game, he said he said that along with saying that's the standard we want to set for the season, especially here at City Park. We have to put our hand up and say the first half wasn't good enough. The second half we're in the game. We woke up a little bit in that second half. We really stood for what we believed in and showed it in certain moments. So that's all he can ask. He goes on to say, then you can see the guys start to get rewarded in their brave actions, but unfortunately, it was a little bit too late. And actually, I thought it was kind of interesting that that was his comment post game because at the beginning of the second half, Seattle started early. You had opportunities that Leo Chu really started with a shot past Berkey. And to me, this was the save of the game. <laughs> that was awesome. With Tim Parker. Tim Parker, as much as, and my wife was mentioning that it seemed like he made up for whatever happened in the first half because. This was easily a Parker save. He was the only man back behind Berkey. Berkey took his chance to go out after Leo Chu. Parker in net, nobody behind him, made the save to clear the ball. That was great to see. And I think that could have provided the spark to keep us going because shortly after that, you had AZ Jackson getting a shot at 49 from inside the box. To me, possibly our greatest chance to to score a goal that it was kind of one of those seeing eye shots at pretty close range. AZ then had another uh, chance a few minutes later play in a through ball from Nico Joachini in the left channel. So you're seeing build-up play start to occur. Unfortunately, we weren't able to capitalize. And I think because we weren't able to capitalize, the game kind of started to get back into a flow. And it wasn't a flow that we were really comfortable with. It was a very possession-based flow for us. Seattle said, take the ball. You try to beat us. We're going to drop back. We don't need to move forward. And then it didn't take until 65 minutes for another chance that was really big in the game where Christian Roldan had a long shot after another big switch. You're seeing Seattle take some of those opportunities that they did in the first half when they were afforded them, but they didn't need to take too many. Right after that, you had Nico Joachini going down in the box. And I'm curious what your thought on this one is because I, I saw it, seeing it live, obviously you think, okay, that's a penalty and it was called a penalty and you don't think anything of it. And then it goes to VAR. They end up overturning it. What happened was Nico Joachini was trying to step back on the ball because he was he was facing the wrong direction, receiving a pass, trying to recover the ball, step over it, turn it back. There was contact from Christian Roldan, but clearly at the end of the day, there wasn't enough contact to maintain the penalty call. What I saw after this game and, and kind of uh, in the comments in the second half was a lot of fans seemed to have um, a, a disdain for what Joachini did here. And I, I kind of get it because you see it. You, there's, a, there's a purveying thought with soccer of flopping and not trying to draw <laughs> fouls that aren't there and going down easily. Jared Stroud caught some flack on some of the comments for what he did at the end of the game. But these are moments that can change the game, and you're trying to do your best to get calls. Every mm-hmm. sport does it. Every player does it. Every, every high-level player is good at doing it. Nico Joachini has done it successfully in the past. So when Joachini went down here, it was clearly a moment where he was close to drawing a foul. And the key thing here to me is that this would have been a penalty. Joachini knew exactly where he was in the box. Mm-hmm. 
And so you're looking at this as a play of Joe Keeney had three players around him and he probably saw his best chance, best percentage chance for a positive outcome being draw the contact, go down, earn the penalty, get a goal back. It was it was not something I feel Joe Keeney would have done if he was outside the box. Yeah, that would not have been. Uh, near the same game changer if it was close maybe trying to draw a free kick but this isn't something you see at midfield this is a tactical decision Jokini made knowing there's three players around him and he's it's likely he's either going to be dispossessed or go down on contact I didn't see too much wrong with it I understand some of the feedback what did you think about that yeah yeah it's it's part of the game but uh when uh when when the ref uh when the when the ref blew the whistle, I actually thought that he had to stop the game to give Joaquini a yellow card for simulation. <laughs> so I, I was so confused, and then uh, you know, oh yeah, it's it's penalty. And but yeah, I saw the replay, and yeah, there was a very slight contact, but I don't think it was enough for for a penalty. And uh, Leuven uh, said it post game. He was like, to be honest, that that wasn't a penalty. Uh, but he also he said, yeah, you, you have to find those moments and hope um, that maybe that will be a PK and then you can uh, take take a turn and and change the game. But uh, but yeah, to me it wasn't a, a PK and, and yeah, I understand uh, people who get frustrated with it. But uh, as you were saying, he had three players on him and that was probably his best chance. And there was some contact and he he went for it. Unfortunately. VAR ended up overturning that decision. And I can see it both ways for Joe Akini. He often finds himself in this position comparatively to other players like Klaus and Sam. And you see Joe Akini uh, have these moments and these opportunities to try and draw fouls in this way, partially because of just the way he plays, his positioning on the field. He ends up in traffic a lot more, whether it's underneath or trying to to draw players in as opposed to like a line-breaking striker like Klaus or Sam. Who, who gets into open space a little bit more. And so style of play, what they're asked to do on the field, that plays into opportunities that they, that they have. But then the, the flip side is referees are familiar with what Joe Keeney does. And so I do think there is a little bit more of, a, of, of an eye towards, okay, we have to be careful about giving him these calls. He, he doesn't earn the benefit of the doubt as a player like Klaus or Sam might because they don't often put themselves in those positions. Yeah, and I, and I think uh, like early in the season, like when when the referees um, weren't familiar with Joaquini, like yeah, he would get a lot of those calls. But but now uh, they're gonna look at those closely. And um, last night ended up being overturned by VAR. So the game ended two nothing. We didn't uh, go home happy like we wanted to. We didn't end up with as many of the accolades as we wanted to. But before we get into what the club has, uh, has accomplished and, and as we go forward, um, I mentioned earlier the passing network kind of had some interesting, interesting factors to look at. And I do think these are takeaways as well because it's not just analyzing the Seattle game and what went wrong, but it's looking at when you play a team like Seattle that you may face in the playoffs, you have to understand what went wrong and how you can, how you can either change your tactics better utilize players or go in a completely different formation because now this is the second vastly different formation and approach that we took to Seattle. The first game had the three center back five in the back. Look, this one was more of a vertical four, two, two, two. And in doing that, you're, you're leaving your defensive players in a very, uh, a very strong position to have to take ownership, to connect the lines. 
I mentioned we didn't do that very well. Akil Watts only had five of seven pass completions this entire game. Playing as double pivot with Blome, who had 16 of 19 pass completions, this was a game where the ball was played entirely from our center backs to our wings. You had Tim Parker, Joachim Nilsson, Edu Leuven, Anthony Markanik, and Jake Nerwinski, our center backs, our fullbacks, our higher midfielders, all leading in passing. And you compare this to what Seattle did with Joao and Josh Atencio. So you look at Watts with his five passes, Blome with his 16. Paolo and Atencio had... 37 and 31 passes, respectively. The ball was played entirely through their midfield. And this furthered me feeling like I was watching the game with no connections. And so you're looking at um, if they didn't pass the ball, then maybe they took those opportunities and they received the ball and they carried it up to progress the ball up the field. That didn't happen either. Bloman Watts were the lowest on the team in the number of carries, which is the stat that has controlling the ball at your feet for a period of time, just in general, turning, controlling the ball, and doing something with it. It's not saying you have to go 10 yards. It's just controlling it. Blome had six. Watts had three carries. These are lowest on the entire team. Compare it to Edu Leuven, Tim Parker, Joachim Nilsson, AZ Jackson, and Jake Nerwinski. Again, center backs, full backs, attacking mids, all had greater than 20 carries. So you're seeing how the ball was almost avoiding our midfield in just about every way. And again, comparing it to Paolo and Atencio, who both had more than 20 carries. This, this ability for Seattle to connect their lines and the, the deficiency St. Louis had in the midfield in general in almost working around it through the fullbacks and through the attacking mids who were playing wide is definitely a takeaway that I think Carnell has to look at when you're approaching a team like Seattle or even a, a high-caliber team in general. So I don't know how it's going to play into San Jose and Sporting Kansas City because both of them play different styles, and I think that's not as pertinent of a factor. But this is a long-term concern when you're looking at possibly moving on into the playoffs and who you might play after that. Paolo and Atencio allowed themselves to start in a deeper position. It helped their numbers defensively, which was a factor in a lot of what St. Louis was doing because looking at the game, Santi, you often found, like, how is Seattle able to have so many players deep defensively against us where we're, we're not able to create chances because they outnumber us. And then also when they progress the ball into their, their attacking third and get in these transition moments, it's the exact opposite. We're finding ourselves outnumbered. How are they able to do this? And the answer is very clearly Paolo and Atencio. Yeah, they definitely made a difference. I was excited when I saw the lineup and um, Lewin wasn't part of that double pivot. And I saw he's going to have more of an offensive role, but uh, but yeah, the connection uh, for um, Watts and and Blom wasn't wasn't there. Uh, so maybe for for future games, maybe um, Lubin will be part of that double pivot, or maybe we will see that diamond formation again. But yeah, I'm sure um, the team will make adjustments uh, for the playoffs. Uh, who, even if it is like regardless of who the opponent. Uh, is between Sporting and um, San Jose. I think there will be adjustments made uh, thinking about the playoffs. And uh, hopefully Indy uh, will be back healthy and, and will be uh, in consideration to, to start some of those games. Yeah, we now have a week break and we have no international obligations. So this is uh, as much of a reset as anything else with no distractions, no outside things going on. But as we as we look forward, there is a lot to celebrate about this team and their final accomplishments for the regular season. And like I said, we're going to do a, a deeper dive of the regular season in how it went overall, probably on our wind down this Thursday for Flyover Footies, big show. But St. Louis does finish the regular season with the third most goals, the third best goal difference. 
the third most interceptions, and the third most wins in all of MLS this season. 62 goals scored, uh, plus 17 goal differential, 356 interceptions, and 17 wins. The team's first season, St. Louis City becomes the first expansion team in MLS history to win their conference. It's another accomplishment that we can look back on when the season's over and say this is this is one of those hallmark things, adding to the hopeful, uh, successful resume of a guy like Bradley Carnell for Coach of the Year. City has 17 wins on the season, like I said, and they've set the record for the most wins by an expansion team in MLS history, excluding the shootout era, because God bless the Chicago Fire and their expansion <laughs> team. Um, City did finish with 62 goals. They join LAFC, Atlanta, and the Chicago Fire as the only expansion sides uh, to do that in their debut seasons. The team had their plus 17 goal differential. It did tie the Chicago Fire for the second highest goal difference by an expansion team in MLS history trailing only Atlanta United's incredible plus 30 goal differential in their first year. City finished this year with 11 home wins. That's important to know going into the playoffs. 11 home wins ties Atlanta United in 2017 for the most home wins by an expansion team in MLS history, excluding the shootout era. And then don't forget, as we look way ahead, we have secured the top seed in the Western Conference, and we've also secured a spot in the 2024 CONCACAF Champions Cup. So a lot of exciting things that we can eventually look back on and say, wow, this was the year that we all hoped it would be. But for now, you know, we're kind of in that transition trenches, right? Going into the playoffs. Yeah. Now you have that, that play of mindset. Uh, when the team lost against Vancouver, uh, my first thought was, hey, this is a, a good loss. It will allow the team to uh, reset, get ready for decision day. But um, it's it's hard to play uh, when you don't have anything on the line. And and Berkey said it on his post game remarks, like like yeah, we we did our best, but uh, it's just um, like we like when when you 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 have anything on the line, um, like um, your mind may not be fully there. But um, it will allow the team to reset again, and uh, like this loss, especially against a playoff team that you may see uh, Seattle ended up in second place of the conference. So yes, potentially um, these teams could meet again in the conference final. And um, yeah, I'm sure the team will, will look back at, at the last couple of games and uh, just get ready for the winner between the sporting and, and San Jose. So yeah, it's not good to end up with back to back losses, but, at the same time, it will allow the, the team to uh, look at things closely, uh, make some adjustments to correct some of, some of those mistakes and um, get ready for um, the next game. If you're looking for uh, positives to take away as far as how the team has responded in the past to losses like this, I would only be able to point to back in April where after our 5-0 start, Minnesota defeated St. Louis 1-0 and Seattle defeated St. Louis 3-0 back-to-back. It was the only time before now that St. Louis has lost back-to-back MLS matches. And the way they responded to that afterwards was the 5-1 win over FC Cincinnati. So you're seeing the only time St. Louis has had to deal with back-to-back losses um, in MLS play like this, uh, where they they had been shut out in those games, has been, uh, you know, they responded well. And you're seeing, I think, an opportunity to go forward, having been shut out now two in a row, just like we were in April, for St. Louis to face another high-caliber team like we did against FC Cincinnati and and show this ability to bounce back again. Um, 
to me, this is this is different in both both times we've lost multiple games in a row. The shutouts in April and then the the times in uh, June because of the injury considerations. So April to me, we had all of our attacking options present from Klaus and Leuven. June, we were missing both of them. And so being able to bounce back in those ways uh, is going to be important going forward. Before we look ahead to who we might play and before we look ahead to the overall MLS climate and uh, really quick, I do want to mention something that was interesting. It happened post-game. I think a lot of people might have missed it because it was after everybody left. It was not on the broadcast, um, but it's worth spotlighting. And it was something that the supporters are calling bricks giving. Post-game after the match, the club came over like they usually do to the supporters section in the North End. Bradley Carnell had some words of thanks and praise to the supporters for their for everything that they're doing. And then the supporters invited him and the team over to their wall. I will read from Fleur de Noise's Twitter account. If you haven't seen that, go check it out. In what occurred from the players to the, the club, it says, The brick you received this evening played a significant role in shaping the fabric of St. Louis as we know it. In 1849, after a devastating fire that destroyed large parts of the city, St. Louis emerged from the ashes even stronger and more resilient, thanks to bricks made from the abundant red clay beneath our feet. From the homes of many neighborhoods like Old North and Benton Park to the sturdy walls of the brewery, that fire paved the way for the iconic brick buildings that make up our city. Bricks are deeply woven into the fabric of St. Louis as we know it today. You, this team, are now a part of that fabric. From the historic start of the season to the many highs that followed, your active involvement in our community through youth soccer initiatives, neighborhood cleanups, and more embodies what it means to be a St. Louisan. This brick symbolizes our deep appreciation for this inaugural season and represents what has come thus far and what we can build in the future brick by brick. What do you that's, think, Santi? That's amazing. Um, it's great to um, to see that recognition from the supporter groups um, to the players. Um, great season and breaking records and uh, finishing first. Uh, I, I really like that that moment. And, and yeah, I was hoping more people will stay for that. Obviously, after a loss, people are disappointed and, uh, and want to go home and um, not in celebration mode, mode, but but hey, you had to celebrate the accomplishments of the season and uh, the team uh, make uh, a point on um, thanking um, the fans last night and even on the on the high video, it was all about the fans and uh, it's a great touch that uh, Bradley Carnell also had uh, some remarks uh, for the fans. And so yeah, that was a great. I ask. Um, Edu Leuven post game and, and he said, yeah, it's been very special to have all the support um, from the fans this year. And and uh, I, I'm going to leave you with this. Bradley Carnell on his remarks, uh, he, he said, thank you for all the support. Uh, we will need you in the playoffs. True words cannot be spoken. It was it was uh, as as uplifting of a moment as you could hope for after that that match occurred. And you're right. Not everybody was in the greatest of mindsets, but it's something that you almost have to do because they, the players, the team have earned it and you can't let the, you have to look at the forest through the trees, right? You can't let the, the immediate downfall or the immediate setback rather um, hamper all of that because all of those things are deserved and, and appropriate. But then you do have to pivot pretty quickly to playoff mindset. And I thought Edu Leuven actually said it pretty well post game when he's talking about what the, what the playoffs are like. And he said that we know that in the playoffs, it's a whole different thing. I've never played in a playoff, but I treat this as kind of a German cup mentality in one game where everything can happen because it's only one game. Like I said, it doesn't matter that the whole season before what happened, 
on what spot you entered the season. So we know in this situation, every team can make it to the final. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. But what St. Louis is going to have to face, because the regular season has now come to an end, is one of San Jose or Sporting Kansas City. The MLS Western Conference has completed, just like the season, and the way that this shakes out after St. Louis wins the conference is, like you said, Santi, Seattle Sounders have finished second with 53 points, three points back from St. Louis. LAFC and Houston follow them in third and fourth, meaning those teams have secured home field in the first round. Real Salt Lake, Vancouver Whitecaps, FC Dallas are five, six, and seven. And eight and nine, as we've been watching for, (laughs) feels like forever now, shook out to be sporting Kansas City in eighth and the San Jose Earthquakes in ninth. The Portland Timbers, who started decision day in seventh place, are now on the outside looking in. They get to watch the rest of this season from their couches, having finished 10th with 43 points. Yeah, Portland Timbers, who uh, like three weeks ago were looking like a team that nobody could stop and maybe nobody wanted to face in the playoffs, um, ended up uh, falling apart in the last two games. It's interesting that uh, Houston beat them 5-0 like uh, 10 match days ago or so. Uh, So that resulted in uh, Gio Savaresi getting uh, fired. And then with with the new coach, they put together some good performances, uh, won a few games, put themselves... uh, back in playoff position and uh, then uh, the same Houston Dynamo that beat them 5-0 and their their season last night. You, you got to love the poetry in that regard. But what matters for St. Louis going forward are the San Jose Earthquakes and Sporting KC. They are going to play each other on Wednesday night and it looks to be an 8.30 start central time. But both of these teams have their own pros and cons to who you really want to face. Um, I think what you look to as they play each other in Kansas is going to be that St. Louis has defeated the Quakes twice this year, home and away, and we're 2-1 and one against SKC, both of those wins coming at home. So when you look at a first round that's going to be a best of three, home, away, and then home if necessary, that's going to be important to remember is our, our ability to handle SKC at home and our overall quality against the San Jose Earthquakes. The way that they entered the playoffs were San Jose drew Austin on Saturday night, sporting KC kind of whopped Minnesota three to one and they enter the playoffs on a little bit more uh, momentum building a little bit more of a higher note having won three of their last four their one loss though obviously the St. Louis City game in City Park at four to one loss for SKC Peter Vermees though post game I don't know if you saw what his comments were post game but it was almost like he was on a victory tour oh. he was he was really letting the media have it in sport in Kansas on their lack of trust, lack of faith in his ability and the organization's ability to get them this far. And I did see some pushback by their fans, credit to these fans, who did notice that you shouldn't, if you're in the the shoes of Peter Vermees and Sporting KC, the storied club with all these expectations, you shouldn't be dunking on anybody by just squeaking into the playoffs on decision day. Yes, you started the season terrible, and it it was a great rise from your ashes, so to speak. But the expectations for that team internally in Kansas City are a lot higher. And so I think Vermees' next few matches, if he gets the next few matches, are going to be important to watch. And what St. Louis has shown both of these teams, San Jose and Kansas City, really leads me to think that this, personally, I would rather face San Jose. But with with Sporting KC having been beaten twice already at City Park, 
there is that aspect of they don't seem to have an ability to win. I'm personally not a fan of playing a team five or six times, rival or not, in any given season. There's too much familiarity there. There's too much chaos that can occur. And in these playoff matches, there's no extra time. It goes until the end of 90, and then it goes to PKs. And so if you're if you're going to leave that up to chance against, to be fair, Roman Berkey's one shortcoming this year have been PKs. He's never been strong at PKs. It's not his style. It's not what he's best at. And so I personally don't want to leave anything to chance in that regard with a team that you clearly know very well, as opposed to San Jose Earthquakes, who we've shown two different ways we've been able to beat them home and away. That that matchup, aside from the travel factor of going all the way out to the West Coast for the second game, provides me a little more comfortability in what we'd be able to throw at them. Yeah, San Jose is definitely uh, the preferred op- opponent for me. Uh, out of the possible five before decision day, um, I was like any of the four, but sporting Kansas. But uh, it looks like uh, it's going to be that way um, because, yeah, it, it's one game between Kansas and San Jose. But if you think about the momentum of both teams, um, Kansas, Kansas is coming on, on a high note, while San Jose, yeah, they made it to the playoffs. But uh they didn't have a, a good last uh, three, four weeks of the season. And basically they're on a downtrend. So, um, but yeah, maybe they will regroup and, and get, uh, get the win at Kansas. And um, then uh, City will play San Jose, which uh, based on playing a style is, is a better matchup. But uh, we will find out on, on Wednesday night. I'm sure we will be watching. Bradley Carnell had a quote post game that I, I really enjoyed. And it was basically, you can take what's happened. And he spoke about this in uh, in context of their game. But he was saying, basically, you can take what happened. You can spin whatever narrative you want to. And I think that does apply. You can spin whatever story, whichever way you want to, to this potential playoff opponent. Because, yes, you, you did mention that San Jose is in much less of a form than Sporting KC. At the same time, ha- despite the fact that San Jose hasn't won since about September 18th or so, They've, they've drawn all four of their last four games. And the, the ability that San Jose has to pull out those kind of results speak to my worry of going into PK mm. situations. So you could go for the home run where you've seen some really dominating performances against Sporting Kansas City. You could deal with the familiarity factor. Or you can go to the point that, yes, San Jose hasn't been overwhelming to anybody, but they've been able to, to nudge along to kind of drag themselves across the finish line for these draws. And if they do that against City, it's anyone's guess on what could happen for PKs. Yeah, yeah. Both of them will be uh, difficult opponents, but um, the team has home field advantage. And I think uh, that will end up making the difference in that three-game series. And we should have more details about City's first round match itself, the date and time coming as we record this Sunday morning, coming Sunday. And if it does come, as we hope, I'll add a little bit for our podcast listeners to make sure that everyone's up to speed on when we're going to play and what time, what day. For now, the rumor is next Sunday at either 7 or 9 p.m. And Santi, you have to think that with Seattle or LAFC having home field, also it does bode well for a potential 7 o'clock matchup as Houston Dynamo are the only other hosting team. So no matter whether MLS decides to do a split Saturday-Sunday for those four matches or everything on Sunday for the Western Conference, 2-2 two and two makes a lot of sense for Central and Western time zones. Mm, so yeah, hopefully uh, the 7 p.m. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people won't be happy with a 9 p.m. game on Sunday, but... It will still be uh, 
a full stadium um, supporting the team. But yeah, we'll, we'll find out more uh, soon, hopefully, and um, get ready for, for Sunday, assuming uh, it is Sunday as, as the rumor um, around there um, said it. And for our podcast listeners this week, I'm going to break in a little bit later on from when we recorded because we did find out on Sunday night that St. Louis will host the first match of round one at City Park on Sunday, October 29th at 9 p.m. So like Santi says, everybody's going to show up. We know it's going to be sold out. We know it's going to be loud, but it's not ideal for that first match. The first match will air on FS1 and Fox Deportes, so it's assumed that that leads into a little bit of the reason on why it might be a 9 p.m. start. The good news is, though, following that, we have a lot better time slots. City's going to hit the road for the second match on Sunday, November 5th at 4 p.m. On November 11th, there will be a third match, if necessary, Saturday, November 11th at 5 p.m. Central Time. All these are central. So October 29th at 9 p.m., November 5th at 4 p.m., November 11th at 5 p.m. Those are when City will play their first round matches. It could be worse, though. We did see that there are a host of other teams that have... Uh, midweek matches at some really unfortunate time slots. The MLS scheduling continues to elude us in their reasoning. LAFC, for instance, West Coast team has a 7 p.m. Central Time kickoff on Saturday, October 28th. The one weird thing that MLS did do is they spread out every single one of these matches. There are no overlapping matches in the first round of the playoffs that we can see. And that's a marked change from what MLS season pass has done so far. So while we are definitely not pleased at the 9 p.m. Sunday time slot, it could be worse. Teams like Orlando have two midweek matches on Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, Best we can do is kind of grit our teeth and show up and make noise like we always do. And that's all for us today. Looking ahead at what we had, it's been fun to look back a little bit, but I'm excited to turn this chapter to get into playoff mindset. And we'll be back again this Thursday night to stream our full flyover footy where, like I said, not only will we have a preview for whoever we'll end up facing uh, between Sporting KC, the San Jose Earthquakes, we're going to look into that match in order to preview what St. Louis is going to face. We'll have information on the date and time. Full preview of that along with a look back at our regular season and so much more. Santi, thanks for joining me. Uh, We're flyover footy, and if you like what you're listening to, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us out. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so and tell a friend because that's how you grow these kind of things. And we have fun doing this every post-match day and looking ahead on our previews. For now, we'll talk to you later. Yeah, we'll see you in the playoffs. Vamos City!